Well, some of you will be very relieved to know that this is the last Sunday we speak on stewardship. For now, that is. But we have received so many wonderful responses from people who have been helped during this series. How to prosper God's way. Now, we have many people who are concerned with what is known commonly as the prosperity gospel. This is not a message on the prosperity gospel. This is how to prosper God's way. The most unusual text, probably, that could be chosen for this message is the one we have read from 2 Samuel 23. When you look at this text and see what David did with a very special gift, you might be prone to say, what a waste. I trust when we are through in a little bit, you will say, what a challenge. At first reading, it would seem to speak of waste. But when you get into the real act of David here, you will note, I believe, that this is the most favorable picture of King David that you could find in all of the accounts of his life. For this passage speaks like no other passage on what I call the stewardship of life. The country is at war. The forces of Israel have been driven back by the overpowering strength of the enemy. Instead of being in Bethlehem, David is shut away from his familiar surroundings and is at the cave of Adullam. It is not where he wanted to be, not where he wished to be, but where he had to be because of the enemy that had infiltrated his land. Because of where he was, much of the country's most cherished landmarks are not at his disposal. Food and water is now a shortage because of the infiltration of enemy troops. In weariness as the head of all of his troops, David longs for a drink of water from the well at Bethlehem. The thing I am not too sure of is how he expressed this desire. Whether he was kind of talking out loud, whether he was literally trying to impress somebody with his need, I do not know. The text simply says, David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem. 
two common soldiers overheard the comment of David, whether it was wishful thinking or whether he really believed someone could do this. But they heard him, and they go, moving through the night to the well by the gate of Bethlehem, endangering their lives. Surely there were enemy soldiers on guard, watching, but somehow these men who had heard this comment got through and they drew water from the well. And by the hour of dawn, they had returned to where their king was and they presented to him the gourd filled with that fresh, wonderful water from one of the landmarks of Israel. They placed it, I'm sure, with great delight into the hands of David. And as he takes in what has been done, he is deeply moved. So much so that the text says he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto Jehovah. The question is why? Why did David do this? Why did he refuse to accept this gift from these men who had hazarded their lives for this water that was now trickling through the dust of the cave of Adullam? The answer is really quite simple, in my opinion. One part of the answer is that the water had come from a sacred spot. It was not just ordinary water. It had not come from an ordinary place. It had come from a very sacred spot in the Holy Land. It had come from Bethlehem. And that's one reason David would not drink it. The second part of the answer to me is that the water had been brought by a supremely brave deed. It had been brought at great sacrifice. And so he poured it out to the Lord. Now, of all the people in Scripture, David seemed to catch the meaning of the theme of this hour, that we prosper God's way. For in the next chapter of this book of 2 Samuel, Right toward the end, there is another act of David that lets us peek into his psyche, into his spiritual understanding, if you will. Arana had a piece of land that he wanted to give to King David so he could build 
his altar and make sacrifice to his God. But it says in verse 24, the king said to Arana, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And there he built his altar, and there he made his offerings unto the Lord. What is the application of these two very unique passages of Scripture, 2 Samuel 23 and 24? Here is the application. We have been blessed by the gifts of God over and over again. You have. I have. Every person who sits in the row you're in has been blessed by the gifts of God over and over and over again. The talents, the time, the ability to cope, everything we count dear in life are but reminders of the love of God to us. All of these gifts should never be looked upon as belonging to us alone. They cannot be used solely to satisfy the physical needs of the human body. That is the application of these passages of Scripture and these acts of devotion and dedication on David's part. They cannot be used solely to satisfy the physical needs of the human body. It would be well if an observer could say, they would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto Jehovah. All of these things that are poured into our possession, poured into our hands, the blessings of life, the goodness of God, they are not, according to these examples of one of God's choice servants, to be used for our human benefit and our human enjoyment. But there comes a time when they become so sacred and so holy, when they are secured because of the sacrifice of others, that there's only one act that is worthy of a believer in him, and that is to pour them out unto the Lord or to give them back to the God who gave them to us in thanksgiving and in devotion and in dedication. Be it a tenth of our income, be it a tenth of our time, be it the offering of our abilities to God, be it our babies in dedication as we present them to God at this altar periodically through the year, We have a loose grip 
on the things that God pours into our lives because we recognize they are given to us that we might give them back to Him, poured out as a sacrifice to the giver of all good gifts. Why is it so hard for us to do what David did in these incidents in his life? I think one reason it is so difficult today is that we are faced with humanism on every side. Humanism is nothing more than man trusting in man, man ministering to his own wants and his own desires. When we have learned that God is our source and must be honored as such, Remember our first text in this series from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. It is all a product of his care and his love for us. Jim Bishop, the author of some 21 books, prolific writer, wrote in one of his books in the 60s, a little essay with the question, there is no God? I share Jim Bishop's observations with you. There is no God. All of the wonders around us are accidental. No almighty hand made a thousand billion stars. They made themselves. No power keeps them on their steady course. The earth spins itself to keep the oceans from falling off toward the sun. Infants teach themselves to cry when they are hungry or hurt. A small flower invented itself so that we could extract digitalis for sick hearts. The earth gave itself day and night tilted itself so that we get seasons. Without the magnetic poles, man would be unable to navigate the trackless oceans of water and air, but they just grew there. How about the sugar thermostat in the pancreas? It maintains a level of sugar in the blood sufficient for energy. Without it, all of us would fall into a coma and die. Why does snow sit on the mountaintops waiting for the warm spring sun to melt it at just the right time for the young crops in farms below to drink? A very lovely accident. The human heart will beat for 70 or 80 years without faltering. How does it get sufficient rest between beats? A kidney will filter poison from the blood and leave good things alone. How does it know one from the other? Who gave the human tongue flexibility to form words and a brain to understand them, but denied it to all other animals? Who showed a womb how to take the love of two persons and keep splitting a tiny ovum until in time a baby would have the proper number of fingers? 
eyes and ears and hair in the right places and come into the world when it is strong enough to sustain life. There is no God. I think we need to remind ourselves of Jim Bishop's essay many, many times in this day of humanism. David's act is even more remarkable when we consider he was the king. He was used to power and he was used to things and having his every need met. Because the more we get, the more power we possess, the harder it is to pour out the water before the Lord. A recent study found that households with incomes in America below $10,000 gave away an average of 2.8% of their income, while households with incomes between fifty dollars and $100,000 gave away 1.5% of their income. What does that say to us? It says the higher you get, the more difficult it is to keep your balance. That's what makes it so hard to walk a tightrope. That's why not every day of the year somebody is just for sport, stringing a wire over the Niagara Falls, and walking across. Because the higher you get, the more difficult it is to maintain balance. And we are experiencing that in this particular time. The more affluence, the more education, the higher we climb the more difficult it is to pour our offerings out under the Lord because we have the tendency to say, it is my skill, it is my hand, it is my power that hath gained this. That's what makes David's act so unique. He was the king. He was the voice of authority. And yet he would not drink it, and he would not take a piece of property for nothing, because he said, I cannot offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. He had found the true way to prosperity, God's way, by giving back in love that which God had given to him. Now I have two points. Every message this month has had two points. God's prosperity includes material possessions, and number two, God's prosperity includes spiritual possessions. Let us look at the material possessions first. Have you thought lately about good health as a material possession and part of God's prosperity? I think of it almost every day of my life because I have been blessed with such good health and have not had to miss, I've not spent a 
night in the hospital in my life. Thank God for that. I have been active and busy about the Lord's work, and I am thankful, but I do not take it for granted. I count my health as one of God's gifts of prosperity in my life. Not alone a gift, but a responsibility. Through the goodness of God, plus the diligence of skilled physicians and scientists, our years are being extended in this time of history. I'm sure you realize that. I was in a foreign country some years ago and asked the age of some very old and venerable-looking people that were around us. And I was shocked to learn that they were mostly in their 40s. I said, you must be kidding. No, no one, no one lives with only a few exceptions to get into their 50s here, was what I was told. And again, I realized how blessed we are in this land with health and with understanding of how to keep health and be strong and hopefully to use that gift as a poured out offering unto the Lord. You see, using David's example now, we take the gift of health, a material possession, and we say, I must use this strength, I must use this healthy mind and this healthy body for God. I must pour it out to God. I cannot use it to heap pleasure upon myself. That's one of the tragedies of steroids. People wanting to get this physical specimen looking like it's worth a million bucks and will last a million years when in reality it's being destroyed with every pill or with every shot because it's not for God's glory, it's for man's pride. And God cannot bless it and will not bless it. The strength I have, which I am so grateful for, I am to pour it out unto the Lord as an offering of thanksgiving. I cannot just use it for my own pleasure and my own well-being. A report from Yale University revealed that students entering college today are one and a half inches taller and 15 pounds heavier and sturdier of body than they were 25 and more years ago. All you have to do is look at the basketball teams and the football teams to discover they didn't make football players like that when I was in school. What is it? It is that through our understanding and learning, we are prolonging our years. And yet so many are throwing away this material gift that is so priceless and so wonderful. We throw it away with bad habits. They even mark the packages 
this could be detrimental to health, but they eat it and drink it and smoke it anyway. And there certainly ought to be no thinking person who would put drugs into their body thinking that somehow that is a good thing, that it's beneficial, and you'll be a better person for it. We are dissipating one of God's great gifts instead of pouring out that gift unto the Lord and trusting Him for the strength and health we need to live the kind of life He wants us to live. Give God the praise for a strong and healthy body and a strong and healthy mind. It's a stewardship to use these gifts well. What about a good job as one of God's wonderful prosperity implements in your life? Most of you have a good job. How blessed we are when I look around Sunday by Sunday when we ask people to raise their hand if they need work. There are very few when you contrast the number of hands with this huge group of people that are here. Most of us are amply employed and taken care of. But how often do we pour that out to the Lord as an offering and say, Oh God, I am so thankful for my job. I'm so thankful for a regular income. I'm so thankful for the strength and the health to work at my job. I just pour it out to you today, Lord, as an offering of praise and thanksgiving. Instead, we complain, we fuss. Somebody gets a move ahead of us or a raise, and we get to complaining and griping rather than pouring it out as an offering under the Lord. There is one commercial on television that I watch every time it comes on. The rest I block out. But there's one I like. It is this amiable airline employee behind the counter taking care of a gentleman who lays his little attaché case on top of the counter. He is taken care of by the employee, and the man turns and walks away only for that amiable employee to look up and see his attaché sitting on top of the counter while he's way down going toward the gate. And he calls after him, but does more than that. He grabs the attaché, he moves out from behind the counter, and like Simpson, he goes running down the corner, leaping over couches. And finally, he finds the gentleman at the gate, ready to go through, and with perspiration dripping from his brow, the gentleman thanks him profusely, and he says, Peace and cake. That just blesses me every time I see it. A fellow in love with his job and does the extra. I have seen it the other way in real life. 
all too often. I would like for us, as God's people, to pour out this offering unto the Lord and to be so eternally grateful for the opportunity to work and the job that God has given us to say, God, it's just a piece of cake. I thank you. I love you for it. I'm eternally grateful. I pour it out as an offering unto you. I will serve with gratitude and joy where you have placed me. I wish you would think that you were the only one who could fill that job because it is until you feel that way, it is not until you feel that way that you will come into the most usable, the most beneficial part of your life. Because there, knowing you're the only one that can fill that place, you begin to pour yourself out to those that are around you. Let's stop the complaining and start the praising and the pouring out. What about your family? God's prosperity includes material possessions like family. The longer I live, the more I know that in keeping God's laws, the family survives and is blessed. It's God's way of prospering us. The opposite is true when those laws are broken. Rules and regulations regarding marriage and family have come from God. For our prosperity, for our benefit. It's interesting that when God created man, he only created two. Not three or four. He began with no spare parts. He made a man and a woman. God didn't have any backups in case the relationship between Adam and Eve did not work out. Hello? The two created to share in family relationship, I noticed, were also male and female. Good morning. I noticed that. When we follow God's laws, God's prosperity is a result. A loving family a healthy environment. And I think it's time we recognize that whatever was in Adam is in us, and whatever was in Eve is in us. And you don't change that by changing the scenery. It's in everybody. The grass is not greener on the other side. It could be more burned than yours is. 
He made them male and and female, and he gave them the name Adam and Eve, and he did not have spare parts. He said, work it out, and I will bless you, and I will honor you, and I will prosper you. Are you thanking God for the material possession of family instead of always looking to the other side of the fence? God, save us from the humanism of this world. And then, fourthly, under material possessions, I put this morning a good church. I've been thinking about what God provided provided for his people in the Old Testament. He provided them a tabernacle and a temple. Interesting. When they were on the move, they had the tabernacle. When they settled down, they had the temple. Both symbols that there they could meet God. And the tabernacle and the temple were the most satisfying possessions of the children of Israel. Read the 84th Psalm sometime today when David said, How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul and my flesh cry out for the living God. The birds have found a nest for themselves, even thine altar, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. What he was saying was that he was shut away from the house of God. It might have been at the cave of Adullam. And he thought of the temple, the place of God's presence, and he envied the birds that they could go there and he could not. God's house was their most prized possession. A material building leading to the manifestation of God's presence. What does it mean to you to have a place to regularly come? Pouring out unto the Lord that offering. Not letting the Super Bowl interfere. Not letting the opening of fishing season interfere. Not letting hunting season interfere for the call of the golf course interfere. Not letting anything interfere with the pouring out of that blessing unto God. Lord, I thank you for your house. I cherish it. It's my most prized possession. Where I can meet God. Where I can walk away with my soul fed and my needs met. Why are we falling apart today? Because the house of God is the last thing on the list of most Americans. And it ought to be the first. Let God's Holy Spirit drive that into your heart today. Among the letters I got this week was this very brief note from the brother who put his card on here. This is the fifth and sixth little note I've started, he said. They keep turning into long letters. 
I get excited and keep writing. I just wanted you to know how much your messages on stewardship have meant to me, how they have helped God change my life. I sure thank God I can help him. <laughs> I started this year down and discouraged, weighted down with the problems of life. Now this, my job hasn't changed, my financial situation hasn't changed, but my attitude has changed. My life has changed. God has taken the worry and the weight and replaced it with his peace. A peace I've always wanted and never known. Please, continue to get on us and tell it like it is. I need it, and he underlined that. Praise God for you, and then he wrote this, and our church. I could go on and on, but then I'd have another letter. And so he signed it, your brother in Christ. I thank God for you and our church. Friends, it's pouring it out under the Lord. Come wind or high water, come sleet or storm or the beating of the sun, I will make my way to the house of God and pour my life out there as an offering unto him. I will not just go around saying I'm a member of a church. I belong to a church. I will pour out that part of my life before God with sacrificial service, with faithful attendance, with whatever it is I'm supposed to do to be a servant of Jesus Christ through his church in an hour when people are becoming humanistic and atheistic in their life and their living. Well, I better move to number two. God's prosperity includes spiritual possession. Just two points under this. Faith in a time of faithlessness and hope in a time of hopelessness. You see, I'm not even talking about money today, am I? And I have hardly done that all month. Because if you get the concept that's in the Bible, we won't have to worry about the money. It will be a part of the poured out offering. We're talking about spiritual possessions, faith in a time of faithlessness. Never did I feel so sorry for a person in my life as when on a television set in San Francisco some time ago I sat next to Madeline Murray O'Hare's son being the only two invited to speak. And he was as close as a chair next to me, so much so I could touch him. And he was trying to explain his atheism, and I was exulting in my faith with joy and enthusiasm and Bible verses to back up my position until he became so frustrated I put my hand on his leg 
on the television set. I didn't even know what I was doing. He said, let us not be so harsh with him. He just does not discourage but makes life miserable. I honestly felt sorry for him. He was stammering like an idiot, unable to convey thoughts properly while pouring out of my mouth and through my spirit was the word of God and the love of God and faith that worked. And people knew it and could not escape it. I thank God for faith in an hour of faithlessness. I sat this week in executive session in Springfield, Missouri to hear our foreign missions director, Phil Hogan, talk about China. He just got back. He invited me to go with him. But because of my dedication to you, I stayed home. Really, and I wanted to go badly. But I stayed with you. You can send me flowers this week. But I listened to him as he shared the results of that trip. He said China has opened up. He showed us pictures of churches packed. Billy Graham was on television this week from his trip to China. Same thing. It was a retarded civilization. The question is why, and the answer is simple, because Confucianism, along with atheism, leads to negativism. There is no progress. There is no future. Noble goals that faith inspires have been missing in China, but now they are back. Why? Because of faith. Because of religion. Buildings are springing up. High-rises are being built everywhere. There is a new spirit. Why? India does not have an absence of brilliant minds or an absence of equal opportunities compared with the rest of the world, but the presence of Hinduism and a caste system that has stymied the creativity of God and the people has brought India to the depths of despair. How long has it been since you poured out to the Lord an offering of thanksgiving for faith? Down in Cuba this morning, there are lines of people outside of churches waiting to get in. Castro's communism has not done the job. The authorities are having to go to the churches to control traffic. They cannot leave people on the outside. There can be no outdoor meetings. They have to get them on the inside and all over Cuba. As we meet in this church this morning, faith is exploding because of the supernatural. And the people say in Cuba out loud, he wants us to believe there is no God. But look all around. People are walking who have not walked. People are hearing who have not heard. People are seeing who have not seen. There must be a God. And in Cuba this morning, there is a revival. Hallelujah. Will there be in America? It depends on you and it depends on me. 
Are we willing to pour out an offering to the Lord? And thank Him for our faith. It is faith in Christ that sent thousands of the founders of this nation across the Atlantic and dominated them in their building a new world. The impetus which gave us hospitals, universities, and reforms of all kinds has been the impetus of faith. I come to church this morning with that prosperity which came to me from God. And then there is hope in the midst of hopelessness. Dr. Lloyd Ogilvie in his book, A Future and a Hope, which my wife gave me over Christmas, tells of Ted, a successful Chicago businessman and friend. In his office recently, Lloyd noticed on his friend's desk a plaque engraved with the words, There's hope for you. Dr. Ogilvy asked him if there was a story behind the plaque. Ted told about an excruciating failure he'd gone through in his business years before. He lost everything at what he called bottom below bottom. That's low. Ted was forced to face his economic plight and his spiritual emptiness. Some Christian businessmen who met over lunch each Thursday in the Chicago Loop took him under their wing. One of the men always ended his conversations with Ted with the parting shot. Ted, there's hope for you. Eventually, Ted began to believe it, and one day he committed his life to Christ. Now, successful again, he has on his beautiful desk a plaque which reads, there's hope for you. I do not know if she is here this morning. I hope so. A lovely young lady I sat by on the airplane Thursday from Denver, Colorado to Sacramento. When I got in my seat on the aisle, she was by the window already, and I did not know whether she had a very severe cold or if she was crying. So I breathed a little prayer. Lord, if you want me to talk to her, give me the opportunity. I went to reading some of the material I had with me, and the trip was half over. When the stewardess came to pick up her empty tray, I chose not to eat. And in turning to give her the tray, she had to look my way, and I grabbed that opportunity to say to her, do you live in Sacramento? She said, yes. I said, where have you been? She said, Virginia. My brother's wedding and my family lives there, and that's why I'm so emotional. Well, then I knew it was not a cold. I said, I live in Sacramento. Rancho Cordova. She said, well, I live in Rancho Cordova. I said, well, I'm the pastor of Capital Christian Center on the freeway. You probably go by it on your way home. And it was at that she looked up kind of like this. You mean that big church on the freeway? Yeah. 
I can only tell you that from there until our landing, Jesus Christ came and sat in the seat between us, which was empty. And a young lady who had been married a year and a half, missing family on the East Coast, not having found a church, although she believes in Jesus Christ and has been active in the Baptist church in her pre-marriage years, got new hope. She just squeezed my hand and said, I just can't believe you would have sat in that seat today. And the difference from that moment in Denver to the landing in Sacramento is absolutely unbelievable because of hope. My wife picked me up. I was just to drive away when I saw she and her husband come out of the airport. So I tooted my horn, put the window down, and introduced them to my wife. And they said, we hope to be there on Sunday. Somewhere sitting nearby you could be a young couple who's looking for some hope. Who need in this age of hopelessness a foundation to build on. And I have the tendency, as probably you do, to forget from time to time that it's so built into us because of our past that we must Pour it out unto the Lord as an offering. Because I've never felt hopeless all of my life. I feel hope every day I live. I have never had an unhappy day in my life that I can remember. I've had some unhappy experiences, but I've never spent an unhappy day in my life because I have hope. Because the author of hope lives in me. And I want to give him everything I can because I am so blessed with spiritual possessions. I thought of Joseph in Genesis 37, a, a dreamer. He saw his brother's sheaves bowing down to his, his sheep and the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowing down to him. What a dreamer. And he got into prison, and there he was mistreated. And shouldn't even have been there. And how did old Joseph make it? Hope. He remembered the sheaves bowing down to his sheep. He remembered the sun, moon, and the eleven stars bowing down to him. And he could make it because he had possessions that others did not have. And where did he end up prospering God's way? On the throne of Egypt, directing his own brothers later who had so mistreated him. Over 300 years ago, an obscure artist in Moravia became a Christian. He painted a picture of the crucified Christ shortly after his conversion. He put the painting in a very tiny vestibule of a Moravian church. One day a young nobleman visiting the neighboring historical sites walked into the church, glanced hurriedly about with a bored air. Suddenly his eyes came upon the picture of the crucified Christ hanging on the wall of that little vestibule. 
And he stared at it, and he stared at it. Something in the divine love and look portrayed in that picture gripped him. Evening shadows fell, and he still stood and looked. And then suddenly fell on his knees in penitence and homage before the God who was revealed in Christ. That man was none other than Count Zinzendorf, who in the years following became the leader of a spiritual movement known as the Moravians. It was the Moravians who influenced John Wesley when dissatisfied with his faith and with himself, he was reaching desperately for a truth which could bring peace of mind. I dare say that almost every one of us in this building today have been influenced by Methodism, by John Wesley, which in many ways was my roots going way back. The revival Methodists who believed the Bible was God's word and Jesus was God's son and salvation was the only way to heaven. And I got to thinking of Count Zinzendorf, and I got to thinking of John Wesley, and I got to thinking of people who faithfully have passed this on down to me, and I just stand here today in some way wanting to pour out on the ground the gratitude and the blessings of my life to say, oh God, I could never have survived without you. And I am so blessed because of you. And there is a chain that runs clear back to the Garden of Eden that has brought me to this place today of being able to declare God's faithfulness. He would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto Jehovah. That's how to prosper, God's way. All of life has been loaned by God. Poured it out unto him. Let it be an offering that costs you something. Don't be trying to get by on the cheap end. Pour it out. And he will pour it in. Would you pray?